Okay, this morning we are in Esther chapter 7. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that as we study this, we can see uh, your hand at work in the lives of all these people. And and even though you're not even mentioned, it's obvious that you're there, you're working, and we see uh, and learn something of your personality when we see the irony in events that we're going to cover uh, last week and today as well, Lord. We just um, thank you for giving us that uh, uh, insight into who you are and, and how you work. Lord, we pray that as we study this morning that you'll bless your word, help us to see it clearly, understand it, and um, and get to know you better through it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's begin by reading the chapter, Esther chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my my people. This is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Who is he, and where is he? Who would dare pursue his in his heart to do such a thing? Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word, uh, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 feet high. Verse 10. Where does it start? Okay. Um, and this is the actual part of mine. And the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole. And they left up and they set up for they set up for more death. And the king's fury was inside. Okay. Yeah, I know it's starting out. Marie read the last verse of chapter 6, and then you read the first two verses of chapter 7. Like, oh, you're right. Okay, we're... we're <laughs> well, because I had a heading there, I assumed. Yes. Okay. Review. How's that? Review. Yeah, the, the verse divisions are not inspired. <laughs> so, anyways, last week in chapter 6, if we remember, uh, uh, Haman's wife and friends had advised him to hang Mordecai. So he built these gallows, and he was, he was heading in to see the king to get permission to hang Mordecai. In the meantime, King Ahasuerus had not been able to sleep, so they looked at the records and saw that Mordecai had foiled an assassination plot. 
and the king had never rewarded him for it. So he's, the king's asking, how can I reward Mordecai at the same time that Haman enters the throne room asking for permission to hang Mordecai? This is rather ironic. You know, that's, that's one of the things we talked about last week. You know, God's not some impersonal force. He, he has a sense of humor. He likes irony, and we see that really in this in this book. So Haman, uh, well, the king asks Haman, his advisor, how you know how can I honor someone? Haman, being so full of himself, assumes it's him, and so he goes in this long spiel about putting on the king's robe and getting led around by on the king's horse, and by one of the chief princes, you know, and and being honored in the city, and then the. King tells him, okay, you take Mordecai out and you honor Mordecai, just like you told me. And so Haman does that. And he's absolutely uh, mortified. just mortified by it, yeah. He's, and he goes home to complain to his wife and his friends. And, and they had supported him before, but this time we had a, remember we had another group of people. We had the wise men showed up. These were like the magi who came to... <coughs> at the birth of Christ because they knew some of the prophecies um, of Balak and Balaam. Balaam had spoken about the stars shall rise or a scepter shall rise over Judah. So these wise men knew something of the Jewish Old Testament and they warned Mordecai or Haman, excuse me, they warned Haman if, if this fellow that you're attacking is a Jew, then you're in big trouble because they knew God's promise to Abraham that those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. And right then the um, king's eunuchs come and hustle him off to the queen's, uh, the queen's palace for uh, the meal again with, uh, where you'll have the king and the queen and just Haman together uh, eating this meal. So that brings us to chapter 7. Look in verses 1 and 2. Now the king and Haman came to, to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your re- request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. So this is the third time he's asked her what it was that she wanted. Remember the first time she entered the throne room unbidden and he accepted her and he asked her, what do you want? And she said, well, come and eat with us and have a dinner prepared. So at the first dinner, he asked her again, what do you want? She says, "Uh, to come again tomorrow and then I'll tell you what my request is. So she's already basically put herself on the spot that she is going to ask him this time uh, for her request. Now, one of the things they, uh, we see that they apparently like their wine at their banquets mm-hmm. because even the word banquet comes from a derivative that means to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it doesn't, there's no indication here that any of them are intoxicated in this case, um, but they're, they're in the place where they drink wine. Um, and so, again, the king, uh, for the third time, asks her... Uh, what is her petition? What is her request? 
and it's kind of stylized because we see the usual, you know, up to half my kingdom I'll, I'll grant to you. And that just as a way of indicating uh, his generosity. So we'll go on to verses 3 and 4, and we will see her request finally. Then Queen. Is the second day actually a second day, or is it like later that night? or It's the next day. So, so it's not the, like midnight changed over or something, yeah. or is, it was actually a two day, two day banquet? No, it's a separate banquet. So it's the, yeah, it's the second banquet. Because the first one apparently was early in the day. Because we have a lot that goes on after the banquet. Haman has to leave. Okay, so it's the second day of that. Okay. Yeah, so it's, an, it's another banquet. You know, come back again tomorrow and we'll, we'll eat, have another meal. So, so it's the second banquet. Okay, verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. So she finally makes this request. Um, and she she begins her request with kind of a, another, it's like a stylized response. Uh, how you show your submission and acknowledge the king's generosity. She says, if I have found favor in your sight. And we, we've seen that before. But this also makes it personal. She says, if, if, I'm, if I'm pleasing to you. So that's her personal request. And it says, if it pleases the king. And that shows her submission to his, you know, to his decision. Um, Back uh, when, when she first went into the king, we, we saw the same formula. You know, you don't, you don't demand anything of the king. You show your submission to him. Now, one of the things that we see here is she, her answer matches his question. Because he asks her in verse 2, he says, What is your petition? And then what is your request? And so here she says, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. So this is all, it's all kind of formalized, but it's, uh, it's kind of interesting to see that parallel. Um, now, Mordecai had, been, had told her several times, don't tell anyone who your people is. Mm -hmm. So my people is kind of unknown to the king, as far as we know here. Uh, and so there's a good chance the king does not know which, you know, she's asking that her life be spared. He makes no connection between that and Haman's activities. You know, they're like two different things, and he, he doesn't make the connection here. Um, so Esther begins by saying that she and her people have been sold. And again, she doesn't mention the Jews. Um, and again, we're not aware that the king knows that this people is the Jews that they've been talking about. And she says they've been sold. And this refers back to that 10,000 talents of silver that Haman 
promised to the king. Let's go back to chapter 4. Someone like to read verse 7 for us. <coughs> and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that came had been promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Okay, chapter 3, verse 9 says, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business. So Esther knew exactly what was going on because Mordecai had told her. Um, so she's aware of all the details. Um, now, this could be taken as kind of an indictment against the king. He's the one who sold the Jews. But it wasn't that he was out saying, you know, I have this people I want to get rid of. Who's the highest bidder? It was the other way around. Haman came to him and said, you know, I have this people group that I think is a problem. I want to get rid of them. And in addition to getting rid of them, I'll make you wealthy. I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. We'll go into your treasury. So uh, it really emphasizes Haman's offer to buy rather than the king's willingness to agree with him and go ahead with the plan. Um, and as we mentioned back then, he should have asked a lot more questions. <laughs> Apparently he trusted Haman. So Esther, again, makes the point here that the plan, Haman's plan, is to totally wipe out her people. And there's a threefold description here talks about destruction. Um, so they're to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Let's go back to chapter 3. Someone would like to read verse 13 for us. This is Haman's edict that he sent out. Okay, so Esther is quoting Haman's edict. She's using his own words against him here. Uh, and then we see the plundering that's going to go on. That's where all this 10,000 talents of silver is going to come from. Um, and then she apologizes to the king for bothering him with this request. Um, she says, you know, if, if you just sold us all into slavery, it wouldn't have been so bad. You know, I wouldn't have bothered you about that. Um, but they want to annihilate us. And so I'm coming and, and uh, I'm coming to you and, and making this request because it is so severe. Um, now there's a word here that uh, uh, at the end of verse 4 in New American Standard, it says, would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. So she's apologizing for annoying him. Um, Joe, I think yours says something a little different, if, if I remember right. Verse, verse 4. Seven. Verse 4, right at the end of it. Um, justly disturbing the king. For disturbing the king. There's one version that says would be a loss that's to... Fine. Okay, a loss to the king. Yeah, that's our footnote. Okay. So it could be a loss to the king. Um, 
And one of the things the commentaries pointed out is slaves are a lot more value to a kingdom than a bunch of dead bodies. They're of value. You've got a bunch of people um, who are productive, who work hard. You know, if you enslave them, you can get labor out of them. Um, and a king's greatness, you know, it's, it's not just measured by how many square miles he controls, but how many people he controls. So it would diminish his kingdom. It would take away this uh, economic benefit. If you go Is back... Too conceited of her to think of him losing his favorite queen too, or what? <laughs> <laughs> she, I know. I was she, she that. No, she she admits it. That's that comes oh, first. Okay. I want you know. <laughs> yeah, she says my request is my life, and my petition is for my people. Right? She includes herself in this. Yeah. Um, do you remember how hard it was for God to get His people out of Egypt? Let's go, let's go back and look at Exodus chapter 5. Did they, want to lose their they did not want to lose their slaves, their labor force. Let's look at Exodus chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. This is Moses' first visit to Pharaoh. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking my people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous. And you are stopping them from working. Okay. How's their labor force? Mm -hmm. Why why should I give up my labor force? Um, because Egyptians didn't want to do work. No, they didn't want to do the work. Let's let's turn to chapter fourteen, which is after all the plagues. Chapter fourteen, and someone like to read verse five here. I need to watch Ten Commandments again, I've seen for years. <laughs> When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Okay, they've lost their servants. We need to go get them back. They're our labor force, and that's when he pursued them with, the, with his army. So, you know, killing all the Jews would have been a bad economic move on the part of King Ahasuerus. <clears throat> And Haman had suggested that. That's what he wanted to do. So, um, Okay, so she presents her, her petition here and to the king. And the king, apparently, he's, he's listening to this. He still hasn't made the connection between what she's saying and Haman's activities. And we'll see this in verses 5 and 6. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. So he's identified here. Um, king asked, who would presume, who would dare to do such a thing? And again, he, you know, he's, he hears this, um, there's a threat against his wife, um, there's a possible extinction of a people group. And again, like Brian said, which, <laughs> which one bothers the king the most? Um, uh, so we're not really told here. But in any event, he demands who, who this vile person is. And Esther 
is just pleased and eager to let him know. It's this Haman. Um, and she does not just give the king a name. She gives him a description of this person. He's an enemy. He's a foe. He's vile. And his name is Haman. So this, when you look at this again, Haman was the, the king's second in command, really. His favorite um, administrator, his favorite uh, uh, advisor. And she's making this accusation against the second most powerful man in the kingdom, in the empire. That's not easy to do. Um, all along we've been talking about Esther's humble submissiveness. And people loved her. Everybody that, you know, she found favor in the eyes of everybody as we've gone through here. Because she's humble, she's submissive, she's polite. And now uh, she has to lay all that aside uh, and just bluntly attack a very dangerous, a very powerful foe. So this is a huge and step. Liked her, and the eunuchs liked her. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the king loved her. Uh, and you see how this this is almost totally out of character for her. But she has to do it. You know, sometimes we have to do things that uh, are totally out of our character. We don't like it. We don't want to. But we it's the right thing to do. And she had to do this. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, the king and, and Haman probably were both kind of stunned by this. She was so blunt. She was, you know, all of a sudden, here she is making what could be seen as uh, an extremely bold political move. Although, Did you understand before his name was mentioned? <laughs> yeah, what's he thinking? <laughs> you know, she had never mentioned that she was a Jew or was related to Mordecai. I don't think he had the slightest idea that she was... Her eunuchs knew. Somebody knew, yeah. I think it was kept close. I don't think Haman knew about it. Um, but they'd never seen her so bold before. Let's, let's look at Psalm 27. This is an example from David. Psalm 27, if someone like to read verses 1 and 2 for us. talking about uh, his, his strength is in the Lord and when his enemies come they stumble and fall before him because he, he trusts in the Lord and that's what we, we kind of see Esther doing the same thing here so one of the things we're told is that uh, in verse 6 <coughs> Haman became terrified um, 
the only the only person in the kingdom who probably had as much influence on a king as Haman did was Queen Esther, and she had never used it before. Um, this kind of comes totally out of the blue, um, and I. Um, And she had just exposed his entire wicked plan to the king. And again, he probably did not know that she was one of the Jews that he had condemned to death. And so he's in this very horrible situation that is only going to get worse. I get to change notebooks here. Who is he? Where is he? Who would do? Who would dare pursue Nimrod to do such a thing? Yeah, who would dare to do this? Yeah, <laughs> he goes Jesus, boy, right there. <laughs> hey, an opportunity. No, I have an explanation for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a pretty, a pretty good setup here. Um, so. That Haman's wife liked that power. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah. Prestige, power, wealth, yeah. So let's see what happens next, going on to verses 7 and 8. And the king arose in his anger from the drinking wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As a word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So the king is absolutely furious when he hears this. And I think he finally puts the parts together. Um, his most trusted advisor had deceived him into a course of action that threatened the wife that threatened the life of his wife and would wipe out an entire people group that was productive and, and beneficial to him. Um, he'd been conned. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Duped. Duped, yes. I, and that's, you know, one of the things here is, um, you know, sometimes if, we've, if we get duped or scammed or something, it's a little embarrassing to have to admit it. So the king was embarrassed, too. Um, Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 12. Someone would like to read that for us. But when Nutanus delivered the king's command, Queen Vashadi refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Okay, so we see him wrathful then. And that was an embarrassment. He sent orders to the queen, and she didn't come. Um, so here again, he's embarrassed, and that's a lot of what where the wrath comes from. Um, so he immediately leaves the banquet. He goes out in the garden. Uh, this is probably wise on his part to cool off a little bit, yeah. get his thoughts so together. Was that? He was eating so many, he left his wine behind. He left his wine behind. Yes. Put his cup down and went storming out into the garden. Um, uh, so he's, he's trying to get his act together there, you know, calm himself down, 
think this through a little bit before he decides what he wants to do. Because he's got his most trusted advisor, his wife are in there, and they're at total odds with each other, and he has to deal with it. Um, he has to figure out who's telling the truth, who's doing what, and what am I going to do about it. So, um, again, when he, Haman, he sees the king, king's anger, um, you know, he said, you know, the king looks mad enough to kill, literally. Um, and so he sees his only hope now is to just beg <coughs> of Queen Esther to save him from death. Um, and so she's now in a position where she has a couple decisions to make. First, is she going to forgive Haman, who has basically decreed her death and the death of her people? Can she forgive him for that? And if so, then is she going to go to King Ahasuerus and plead on his behalf? She's just finished pleading for her life and the people. Is she going to go back and plead again for Haman? I'm, I'm thinking the answers are no and no. <laughs> um, but she doesn't have to make those decisions. Um, so Ahasuerus returns from the garden. Apparently he's decided what he's going to do. In the meantime, you know, Haman's begging Esther for his life. And she's reclining on the couch. And we saw all the way back in chapter 1 in the first banquet, they were talking about the couches. They reclined on couches when they ate instead of sitting in chairs. And I've always thought that would be awkward. I, yeah. It's I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was at the, you know, the Last Supper. They reclined on couches as they ate. And I... No, I, I like sitting in a chair. but So she's reclining on this couch. Haman is probably down on his knees next to her, leaning over her, begging her to forgive him, to, you know, uh, begging for his life. And so the king comes in, and he sees this, and he assumes that Haman is attacking Esther. Uh, you know, she already said that you know, her life was at stake. So is he attacking her? Is he trying to choke her? What's he doing? Um, now, most of the versions here translate this as assault. The NIV translates it as molest. And the word molest, we usually think of, has sexual connotations, which really doesn't fit here. He's at, he, wants, he wants her to spare his life. So you don't molest somebody while you're asking that. He's begging. Uh, so it looks like he's probably assaulting. The word, the word is typically translated subdue. And it's used in different passages of subjecting someone to slavery. Or uh, David, as he expanded the kingdom, he would subdue the nations around him. Uh, to come under their under his authority. So really, the idea is here. He's trying, trying to get subdue her, try to get her to uh, come under under his authority, or to do what he wants her to do. Um, but it probably appears that uh, 
he was physically attacking her to either force her to withdraw this accusation or uh, maybe he was just angry and wanting to strangle her or something. And so that's what the king thought. Um, either way, um, this pretty well signed Haman's death warrant. <laughs> he says, he said, this is, you know, we're in the palace. I'm here. You're attacking my wife. Um, you're, you're dead. And he knew it. He says that they covered Haman's face. The words came out of the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. So he, he knew it, and uh, his face reflected that. Okay, looking at the last couple of verses here. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. So Harbona is one of the king's attendants. And so he makes a suggestion to the king about what to do with Haman. Let's go back to chapter 1. And look at verse 10. I'm not going to make you read it. But on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahunan, Bigtha, Harbona, um, the seven eunuchs who served in his presence. So this, this is in the, um, the third year of his reign. Harbona is one of his attendants. And so I'm guessing that probably Harbona had been there for the first two years. So now we're in the... Uh, like the twelfth year of his reign, so Harbona has been his attendant for twelve years. You know he's he's seen the um, <clears throat> Esther come into the palace, and like all the others, you know she found favor in their sight. She probably found favor in his sight. You know she was a wonderful young lady. He probably liked her. He was probably happy for the king. Some of the king's love for her. Um, and then also, uh, you know, so that was four years later in his seventh year, and now we're in the twelfth year. Um, so he was aware of the plot that Haman had hatched to, to kill, just uh, annihilate the Jews. And as we mentioned before, a lot of people in the kingdom were probably shocked at this, that someone would even think about doing this. Um, so I have a good feeling Harbona does not like Haman he's attacked he's, he's, de he's deceived the king you know he's a faithful servant he's looking out for the king unlike Haman who's looking out for himself and so he seems pretty eager to bring this up hey there's a gallows out there <laughs> Well, I was just wondering, since it says um, he was the king's unit and he knew that the yellows were for Mordecai, if he was one of the ones that back in uh, chapter 6, 14, that went to get him, I might have overheard him talking to the wise men about it or something. Possibly, yeah. He might have known about it. But he, you know, he, he was aware of what all was going on. Probably, he might have known more about what was going on than the king did. Yeah. Um, did. Pardon? I'm sure he did. He probably did, yeah. Well, you know how servants are always in the background. They always hear what's going on. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and he'd been. Kind of like Nehemiah with his, you know, went as the the wine tester, the food tester. Yes. And then you're with somebody like that. You confide with him. You talk to him. You discuss. I mean, <clears throat> it was kind of bold of him to, you know, almost as bold this guy to step forward and say, "Well, there are." Yeah. You know, but I think they had a relationship that was probably pretty close. So. Yes. And, and notice, he did not tell the king what to do. No. He just gave him some information. Hey, by the way. <laughs> hey, yeah, look over there. See those gallows? <laughs> All ready for someone to be hung on? Um, so, um, anyways, he, he, he suggests, that, you know, he, he suggests the gallows. And look, the king, gallows. here's the gallows. The and, gallows were in, in front of his house. In front of Haman's house. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> guess what? Yes. Um, but but Harbona also mentioned Mordecai. And what does he say about Mordecai? Who spoke good on behalf of the king. So he reminds the king not just that um, Haman was going to kill his wife and his people group, Haman was also going to hang Mordecai, who was uh, one of the, should have been honored, but who was honored by the king, yeah. So this just adds to Haman's condemnation. Um, I almost feel sorry for him. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I understand that. I, yeah. he, didn't have a chance. he didn't have a chance. God. Um, so it says they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. Um, the king's answer is blunt, quick, just says, my version says, hang him on it. <laughs> um, so the servants carry out the execution immediately. Now, in this passage, twice, just in these two verses, twice it says that the gallows were made for Mordecai. You know, God wants us to see that, to see the irony here. Um, God doesn't want us to miss that point. It's another example of, of irony. So let's turn to Psalms again. Let's turn to Psalm 2. This is actually one of my favorite verses is in here. Psalm 2, it's someone like to read verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at him. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king of Zion, my holy mountain. Okay. The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. I think this, you know, I, I've thought sometimes that God sometimes plays practical jokes on me. Um, in this case, you know, he, this is a total setup here in, in the book of Esther. And God is just laughing at Haman who thinks he can attack my people and get away with it. But we see the, the kings of the earth you know, fighting against. They take counsel together. They're going to fight against the Lord. And who do they think they are? 
Uh, God will show them um, that he is all-powerful all and they don't have a chance. Um, so in Psalm 2, you know, it says, you know, these kings that uh, want to oppose him, that God terrifies them, and then he installs his own ruler. Uh, in, in Psalm 2, it's, it's Christ will come and sit upon the throne and rule over the nations during the millennium. Uh, in our story in Esther, God ridicules Haman, and then in chapter 8, he will install Mordecai as in place of Haman as the ruler. And so we see this uh, being fulfilled again here. Okay, well this is a good place to break and uh, so we'll stop there and we'll continue on with uh, next week in chapter 8. Brian, would you like to close in prayer for us, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the story that shows that you are always out there watching over your people and saving them, even though evil people always try to destroy them. And even Pastor Robert in this next hour to come, may the message be clear in our hearts and, and minds be open to receive your word from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.